Hello! You're plugging in to the Evolution Sermon Podcast. We're so excited to share with you another awesome message from Pastor Charmaine. Have an awesome day. We'll see you at church. So today's message is a brand new addition to the lead series on EQ. Because if you know, uh, this is the second time I'm preaching this series, okay? Uh, And... I've added a message, and that's the one today, okay? So just a quick recap, not too long, but a quick one. We've talked about five arenas of uh, EQ. The first is self-awareness. The second is self-regulation, okay? And a, a third area, which many scientists talk about, is motivation. And then the fourth is social awareness, aka empathy. And the fifth is social skills. So we talked the first two. And in the past two weeks, I've covered everything from Bible verses to brain function to social science to mental health studies. I mean, who would have thought all that had to do with EQ, right? Because EQ, in case you're new here, isn't just about social skills. It isn't about your ability to talk your way to your way. It's not the gift of being able to say the right stuff in order to manipulate and get what you want. No, we're talking about EQ in the way scientists and researchers talk about it, which is a holistic, inside, outside, interactive awareness, uh, a self-control and empathy. And I think I've shown you quite sufficiently how following Jesus and being a good human being, loving your neighbor as yourself, really does require us to develop great EQ as human beings. Yes, yes, yes. I hope you've been here with me, fully here with me, amen. So today I'm going to cover a bridging, what I would call a bridging aspect of emotional quotient, okay? And it's this big word, motivation. Tell your neighbor say motivation. motivation. So how many of you can remember the working definition I gave you at the start of this series, okay? Let me repeat for you. EQ, otherwise known as emotional quotient or emotional intelligence, is the capability of individuals, you and me to correctly discern our emotions and the emotions of others. And to use that information to effectively manage, adjust, adapt, collaborate productively and achieve goals together. Now, so in essence, I said there are two fundamental ingredients. If you cannot remember this definition, EQ is about yourself and others. Your ability to be aware of and manage your inner life and your ability to empathize with what others are going through so that together with them, you can achieve the best outcomes, a win-win situation for everyone. Now, let me add to that a little bit today, and that is an important aspect to EQ and the success you hope to have in your life and leadership is your ability to stay motivated and to motivate others. Let me repeat, the success you aspire to, the dreams that you have, you need motivation. And you also need to be able to motivate others around you. And and let me just emphasize that distinction for a moment because, you know, the last time I taught this, some questions came up, you know, is EQ manipulation? No, listen, EQ is about motivation, not manipulation. Motivation is with both your interests and the interests of others equally in mind. Manipulation is when 
you take care of your interests at the expense of other people. And in the case of being a Christian, listen, motivation must come out of loving your neighbor as yourself. Manipulation on the other hand comes from a place of selfishness. So to expand yourself through to the top of Jim Collins' five levels of leadership in life and organization, right? We told you, week one, you need to develop self-awareness. Week two, then you have to grow your capacity for self-regulation so that you're not always breaking under stress, spinning out of control, being illogical, right? And number three, which is what we want to talk about today, you've got to be motivated. And eventually, which we'll talk about in four and five in the coming weeks, you know, we have to learn to love and serve and motivate others well. So essentially, if you ask my opinion, while a lot of people look at leadership as a pyramid where we are climbing to the top, actually the truth is leadership in our world is supposed to be flipped. Where we seek, we don't seek to be the greatest or the most rich or the most powerful or the most influential. You know, in my opinion, Jesus and science, which we're going through, through these messages, right? is teaching us that it's actually the reverse. That we need to serve others. We need to lift up others. We need to care that others are are fulfilling their destiny alongside ours. So, so, you know, remember what it says, right? Level 5 leadership. I don't know where we remember this from, 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 from uh, message 1, right? Jim Collins said, The best leaders are those who build enduring greatness through a paradoxical blend of personal humility, and professional will. So leadership is not about lording yourself over others. It is about lifting others up. So here's an amazing translation of Matthew 20, 26 that I I discovered in a new translation that's coming up, okay, called the Passion Translation. It says here, uh, this is what Jesus says to his disciples, but this is not your calling. You will lead by a completely different model. The greatest among you will live as the one who is called to serve others because the greatest honor and authority is reserved for the one with the heart of a servant. For even the Son of Man, Jesus himself, did not come expecting to be served, but to serve and give his life in exchange for the salvation of many. I love it. This is not your calling to be the top, to lord yourself over other people. Your calling is to serve others. So listen, when I was starting out as a leader in TiVo, one of the things that I would do even when I was studying full-time at uni and doing church full-time is that at least once a week, I would go down to my own mentor's church to sit in their office and to be with their staff and their leadership team. No reason to be there, just decided to go in, work there, to kind of observe, to learn and absorb the culture and the behavior around me. Now, I was a really hardworking leader already back then. I was on top of things, on top of preparing messages, you know, on top of all the connect group meetings. Last time I used to have to go and preach at every connect group meeting. You know, I would do my admin faithfully, plan stuff for church faithfully. So I went in thinking that I'll go watch and eavesdrop on meetings and hear my leader's wisdom on things like strategy and planning and growth, right? But really, it turned out that one of the most valuable lessons I learned while I was there was how to be a motivator. 
So I remember one of the first times I went that week, it was extremely busy. I was juggling school, about to do exams, and I had to lead, I think, that week, you know, three different CG meetings and churn out the messages for all the other leaders who had their CGs. And so I was rushing, 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 rushing my prep as I sat there in the office. Now, suddenly my mentor walks in into the office and says, Hey, you're here today. Yes, Pastor, I'm here. Hey, have you had lunch? No, not yet. I'm going to rush out the CG agenda first and then I'll go grab something. You know, you're not hungry? No, no, Pastor, don't worry. I'm good. I just need to rush this out. And that was that. My mentor goes into his office and I continue never looking out for my laptop, just doing my stuff. But then suddenly, 10 or 15 minutes later, I get a tap on my shoulder and a staff comes up to me with a plate and a sandwich and says, Hey, Shah, Pastor just personally went to make this for you to eat. For me? Yeah, for you. He noticed you look very tired and haven't had time to eat, so he wants you to take care of yourself. I was so stunned. You know, I'm tired and don't enough have enough time to eat. My pastor and mentor is the one who is tired and has no time to eat. But you know what? Over the next many times that I was there, week after week, I started to notice that my mentor would always make time. Whether it was one or two minutes every now and then, whether it's passing someone in the corridor on the way to the restroom, he would always make little pockets of time to ask how someone was, to check that everyone was okay, to suddenly walk into the office and break a stale atmosphere in the room by cracking a joke, or teaching us a quick lesson about team and leadership, or just talking nonsense with us during the day. And that was how I learned that being a leader in life is not just about being the chief administrator. It's also about being the chief motivator to those around you who follow you. You see, every time, you know, my mentor was busy and looked up and decided to take five minutes to stop what he was doing to motivate us, it made everyone in the room feel better. It injected life into us. It caused us, even when we were tired, to refocus our energy and to become more productive during the day. You see, whether you're a manager at work, whether you are on a team in a school project. Maybe you are a parent. Or even if you usher people through the doors of the church here at TiVo. Listen, your ability to motivate, not just administrate and get the job done, matters. It can mean the difference between whether you and the people around you drag yourselves reluctantly across the finish line or you get everyone from point A to point B happily with a sense of togetherness, with a sense of support, with a sense of inspiration and, and like we are in this together, all in, all out. You see, that is the power of genuine and sincere motivation. And that's what I want to offer up today in this message, a reminder of what we already know. You know, but also some much-needed grounding values and perspectives, a lot of science, a few tools, to help you stay motivated in the fight for your dreams. But also to teach you to always lead in life and motivate in life for the right reasons, because it matters. Okay, so first up, one key to motivation you got to know is that it's really important to regularly, number one, change up your belief system. To change your belief system, to regularly review it, to regularly overhaul your mindsets and what you think you know. 
You see, let me tell you about the power of a belief, okay? The thing with belief is that even without being consciously aware of your belief system, it still has the power to determine the course of your life. You know, listen to me, right? Not five minutes ago, if you had never heard someone say the role of a leader is not just to be a great administrator, it's also to be a great motivator, you will be just going through life thinking, I just work harder, do more, be really good and capable of my job, be better than everybody else, and I will be a great leader. Wrong. Amen. You see, every one of you came into church today with a pre-existing belief system about leadership. You know, a certain picture of what success and successful leadership looks like. You see, for me, all those years ago, being a leader was about being a visionary. Being a leader was about learning how to get the whole team to fulfill that vision. You know, I had had also bad past experiences with leaders who were full of talk and no action. Who liked to cast vision and then manipulate the people around them to work but were themselves completely lazy and selfish. So as a 21-year-old, when I suddenly became the leader of a community services organization, a couple of CGs with the intention of starting a church one day, I vowed to myself as a 21-year-old, I was always going to work hard and work harder than everyone else in my team. And that was the example I was going to set. And because of that, not that I didn't motivate at all, of course I did, I just didn't prioritize how much I needed to feel motivated in my hard work or how my team also needed to feel motivated in order to achieve our vision. And so very often I became a commander, a taskmaster, because that was the model I had seen and I was exposed to as a successful church. And the model I created in my mind to avoid becoming a bad leader was a leader who always gave the most, did the most, worked the hardest. You see, the way we believe, consciously and unconsciously, influences how we end up living and leading. You can't run away from what you believe. You see, when I see how a person behaves, I know what they believe. And if I can plummet into the depths of what someone believes, I know who they will become. Right? It's, that's why Paul gave us this crazy bit of good advice in Romans 12 too. He says that, oh, we need to turn there, I forget. We got to turn our Bibles now. Turn our Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Amen. Romans chapter 12, and when you're there, give me a resounding loud yes. So that I'm excited to preach to you. So that we are excited to agree with the word of God. This is our culture and our belief. Okay, so 12, 2, are you all there? Paul says, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you can figure out what God's will is, what is good and pleasing and mature. So this is Paul talking, one of the greatest leaders in our Christian faith in history. He says, change your mind. Change your mind so that you can figure out God's will. You see, and the fact, right, that Paul says this tells me it means he didn't think his followers, Christians around him, or anyone really, was doing a good job figuring out God's will. Right? We Christians like to think we know God's will. But really, if you think about it, our default is really ignorance and immaturity. 
And even when we do grow in our faith, there's always something God is challenging us and stretching us about. Because what is good at one level of our faith becomes mediocre at the next level of our leadership. So we need to keep reviewing and transforming and changing our belief system so that we can live into what God's will is for our present and what God's will is for our better future. Now, but in case it's still a little too abstract, the Message Bible breaks it down for us, all right? Romans 12, 2 on the projection says, Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what He wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best in you, develops well-formed maturity in you. So implicit in Romans 12 too, is that following Jesus actually really requires us to be very counter-culture. In fact, I don't know if you realize this, if you read about Jesus and his life, the brand of Christianity he demonstrates to us in the Bible is extremely counter-culture. I mean, Jesus was always bucking against the status quo. He was always going up against the establishment and established religion. He was always taking what people thought was good and reinterpreting it and transforming it into something better. So I don't know how we humans became so tame how Christianity became so invested in protecting our status quo in all the wrong ways. Because honestly, our faith in Jesus is supposed to inspire us to live passionately. We're supposed to live motivated lives. We're supposed to be constantly challenged in our value system, challenged by Jesus' vision of a better world and a better future. It should be propelling us to lead different and extraordinary lives. But what is extraordinary, you might ask? Well, for most of us here, because we are Singaporean, it might well be anything that isn't what everyone else is doing. We are so conformist here, right? That success always has to look a certain way and feel a certain way. So much so that even when we think we are being different and unique, we're actually being just the same as everyone else. You know, the same, look at me, I'm so cool, I've got the latest sneakers, I've got the best Instagram travel log, food log, family log. We don't celebrate diversity here in Singapore. <laughs> Even though brands now like to hashtag diversity, right? And inclusion. <laughs> we celebrate homogeneity. We celebrate money, influence, ego, beauty, fitness, power. We just make sure we always hashtag grateful, Hashtag, thank you, Jesus, at the end of our post. And so even Christians, without realizing it, very little of what we do actually captures the essence of who Jesus really is. So you got to have a belief change. Listen to me, we can't have a behavior change without a belief change. You can try to follow Jesus, you can try to be a good leader, a good human being, but no human effort, no, none of us here can effort ourselves into an essence change. 
Now, I know this might seem a little confusing, counterproductive even because our topic is motivation, right? We must be motivated, willpower, right? But you know what? Willpower is sometimes pretty unreliable. You know, if it were reliable, I mean, all of us here would be perfect. We would all be vegans. The world would be amazing, right? But something in us needs transformation. And if that belief change doesn't happen, the behavior change can't follow. So understand this. When I talk about motivation today, I want to define the word as something more than just willpower and drive. Because I tell you, I don't know how many times YAs have come to me for BGR counseling. And one of the things that nearly everyone says when they say they want to find a partner is, I want someone with drive. I want a driven person. You know, and I go, why do you like this person? I like this person because they are driven. Listen, we all know drive is good. Although I suspect what we really want is actually someone who is motivated. Because when I ask 99% of YAs what they mean by driven, you know, they start to stumble over their answers. And they start to throw up all the standard answers. Oh, this person seems driven at work. Oh, this person seems driven to make a lot of money. Oh, this person seems driven to make things happen with their goals. And they have this certain picture in their mind, certain belief system of what motivated looks like. But shall we renew our minds today? Here's what Daniel Goleman, in his EQ research, found and actually defines as motivation. And this will surprise you. This is not a Jesus statement, all right? This is a research statement, okay? Motivation is a passion to work for reasons that go beyond money or status. Oh my God, just sit in that sentence right now. A passion to work for reasons that goes beyond money and status. So if you're looking for a driven person, it better not be because they are hungry for recognition and their ego is out of control. It better not be because they are greedy. Because that is not motivation. Okay, it goes on. A propensity to pursue goals with energy and persistence. That's the part we want, right? But we also want a passion to work for reasons beyond money and status. You see, if motivation is what you are looking for in a person, this should be your definition. This should be your definition of drive. You know, and then Goldman further identified four main elements that make up motivation. He said he found, number one, there must be a strong drive to improve and achieve. And let me put here very specifically, not performance-oriented, but mastery-oriented. Which I'll explain to you the difference in a while, alright? Strong drive to improve themselves, to achieve. Two, commitment and discipline with their goals. Number three, initiative and readiness to act on opportunities. I would call this, in some cases, bravery. Four, optimism and resilience in the face of challenges. So let's say if motivation is what you are looking for, this is what your KPI should be. It is not a person who externally looks like a go-getter, because that person could still be an ass of a go-getter. It's not a person who is good at making money because you know what? The drive to make money, any older person will tell you, even in the sales industry, motivation waxes and wanes. Motivation to make money waxes and wanes. Just be, and listen, just because someone is motivated about making money doesn't mean they're going to be motivated about being a better human and investing in being a better partner or friend to you in life. 
You want someone who has some inner substance, whose passion is more than just money and their own status and recognition. You want someone with some deep motivation, a desire to work on themselves as a human being that goes beyond the external push factors. Turn the neighbor and say, that's the kind of motivator I want to be. And that should be the definition of motivation you are looking for in another person. So listen, let's start with a belief change about the idea of motivation some more, all right? You see, I love how Jesus teaches us in philosophy aligns with what science is already saying. You see, it tells me Jesus' words to us are not in vain. There is so much truth here in God's word that is genuinely good for us. So I want to encourage you today, start having a revolution in your life about what it means to be motivated. You know, throw away the useless picture, the useless subconscious picture of drive. And let's replace it with a more accurate picture of motivation. A picture of motivation that is rooted in godly values. Amen? Now, second belief change I want to talk about besides motivation is a belief change about our emotions. So, we all tend to think that we live at the mercy of our emotions. And therefore, because we are at the mercy of our emotions, we cannot control our motivation. We get stressed, we're no longer motivated. We get anxious, we are no longer motivated. We feel insecure and depressed, we can no longer be motivated. That's how majority of us think and feel about our emotions, right? Especially now Instagram is telling us, just be yourself. Feel your feelings, right? But is that true? So listen, this is Professor Lisa Feldman Barrett, and she is among the top 1% of the most cited professors and scientists in the world of psychology and neuroscience. Top 1%, okay? So we're not messing around here, all right? And she wrote the books, How Emotions Are Made, and Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. Now, what Professor Barrett found is that no brain comes pre-wired with emotion circuits. In other words, your emotions aren't built in. Your emotions are built. So listen, your neuroticism... Your struggles with anxiety or stress, they aren't built in, they are built. So every emotional reaction you have to any given situation, right? It is not built in, it's not something you cannot help. It is actually, what she found, it's a prediction that your brain builds and constructs based on your past experiences and your invisible belief systems. So, for example, right, arm of the projection is this picture of a black and white blob, okay? So, when you look at this black and white blob picture and tell me, what can you see? I'll give you a few seconds. Tough one. Can you see anything? <laughs> now, likely, likely, are you here? Likely, most of you can't see anything, okay? And what you're experiencing right now in this moment is something called experiential blindness. Your brain is frantically sifting through past experiences and stored information to try to find something similar in order to make sense of this black and white blob. 
Now let me tell you what it is. Ooh. Okay. So now let's go back to the black and white picture, right? So now, when I show you this picture again, what do you see? A snake. Some of you still cannot see a snake. <laughs> Your poor brain. <laughs> you should see a snake, all right? But the point is this, are you ready? So, what is built into our brains is actually a mechanism for prediction. Now, prediction is what is primal. Prediction is needed to help us make sense of the world around us quickly so that we don't spend our whole life staring at things trying to make sense of them. We wouldn't be able to walk throughout the day and we'll stop. And then we'll walk and then we'll stop and try to figure out what life is going on, right? So our brains actually predict and construct your experience of this world. Your brain does not react to the world with inbuilt emotion. Your brain creates and constructs emotions based on your past experience and information in your brain. So this means this, all right? Emotions that you experience do not just happen to you. They are actually made by you. And this means every one of us here, you are the architect of your emotions. You can change your experience by changing your beliefs. So, for example, right, how many of you here get nervous before a test? Okay. Now, some of you here get crippling anxiety before a test. To the point sometimes you cannot function properly. Now, and if you, like me, have ever frozen once before an exam, okay, suddenly every now and then when you sit for exam, you know, and your heart starts racing or you start feeling a bit nervous, I automatically think what's happening is that I'm going to blank and forget everything that I studied for. But here's the thing. A hammering heartbeat is not necessarily anxiety. Sweating a lot could just be the room is very hot. Okay? It could be your body is preparing for a fight. It could be excitement instead of being nervous. So what they found is that when students learn to turn a physical reaction into an emotion of determination instead of fear, they actually end up doing better than in tests than students who don't have any physical reaction to the test. And if you do it often enough, if you reinterpret it enough, you train your body to predict fight instead of freeze when you take an exam. And that is what Professor, uh, Professor Feldman calls uh, emotional intelligence in action. Okay? So, motivation isn't something you have or don't have. It's how you learn to harness the power of belief change in order to create positive emotional and behavioral change for yourself. Change your belief system, change your motivation. So that's point one, all right? Point two, listen, trade up your incentives. Trade up your incentives. 
So go with me to Isaiah 55, another verse that I love. Isaiah 55, verse 2 to 3. If you're there, say yes. Slightly near the middle of your Bible. Oh my God, this generation. You only know how to key it into your, your iPhone. <laughs> okay, Isaiah 55, all right? Verse 2, it says there, Why spend money for what isn't food, and your earnings for what doesn't satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Enjoy the riches of feasts. Listen and come to me. Listen and you will live. Let's get to verse 8. God speaking again. He says, My plans aren't your plans, nor your ways my ways, says the Lord. Just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my plans than your plans. So, I love these verses. Again, I love too many verses, but let me repeat them to you again, Isaiah 55, right? It says, why spend money on what isn't food? Earnings on stuff that doesn't satisfy you. Listen carefully to God so that you know what is good. Listen carefully to God so you live. God's plans aren't our plans and His ways are not our ways. Just as the heavens are higher than the earth, God's way of thinking is higher than ours. And his plans are better than yours. So, did you know that our brains are naturally motivated by the promise of reward or punishment? Okay? Scientists call this intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. So, intrinsic motivation is, I quote, a human being's spontaneous tendency to seek out novelty and challenges. To extend and exercise one's capacity to explore and to learn, even in the absence of operationally separable rewards. Okay, now this is by psychologists Stefano Domenico and Richard Ryan, alright? Now, extrinsic motivation, on the other hand, is when we are prompted to act by external stimuli. So very simply, one is internal, the other one is external. Okay? So all human beings, everyone of us here, we need both to stay motivated in life. However, both are not created equal. So many social scientists posit that there are four ways intrinsic and extrinsic motivation expresses itself in our lives, okay? And the first is a category called creative expression. So creative expression is a combination of several neurochemical processes in your brain. And it can take two forms. The first is flow state, which I think I talked about a little bit every now and then, right? Flow state, aka you are in the zone, man. And this happens when a region of your brain, known as the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, okay, we'll call it short DLPFC, okay, the part of your brain that controls planning, inhibition, self censorship, it becomes less active when you're in flow state. You go into a zone of uninhibited creative thinking and flow. There's a rush of ideas. No time to analyze or organize or talk yourself out of anything. Sometimes we experience it while painting or writing, but we can also experience it playing basketball or preparing for a presentation at work. 
So it's not restricted to autistic people. This is of every human being. Okay? Now, the second way creative expression comes out is something called methodical sculpting. So, understand this. Getting into a flow state is intermittent. It's a less common experience. So, you would be crazy to wait around for a slow state to get flow state to get any stuff done. Even artists have to grind out work when they need to. So understand, right, creativity of all kinds is still often hard and tedious work. And so when we need to work, when we need to solve problems, when we need to edit whatever we came up with in our state of flow, that's when your DLPFC, your dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex kicks in. Right? So, so it starts to analyze, it starts to think, it starts to edit. All great work in life is a combination of inspiration, stream of thought, consciousness, and meticulous detailed crafting. That is sculpting. Now, here's the interesting thing about creative expression and our DLPFC. Okay, and that's when scientists ask a group of jazz performers to look at photographs of people wearing either positive, negative, or neutral expressions, and then told them to replicate the photo's mood in their improvisation of music, they found that those who looked at negative photos were induced into an aware state and became more analytical and methodical in deliberately sculpting their music. Those who looked at positive photos were induced into a positive state where they were more susceptible to slipping into a state of creative flow in their music. Creative expression. Now, the second way motivation expresses itself is financial incentive. <coughs> okay? So, as compared to creative expressions, our brains look very different when we are motivated by financial incentives. Okay, so let's start with the most basic, our salary. Okay? Salary, in and of itself, is an extrinsic motivator. And what scientists found is that it gives very little motivation and very short-term, or should I say short-lived motivation. Unless it is paired with more intrinsic motivators. Such as, and they name three, one, a sense of autonomy. In other words, the feeling that you have power and control over your life and your future. Two, competency. You feel confident and satisfied that you have abilities and you are making a contribution. Number three, a sense of connectedness to others. Whether it's a feeling of team achievement, the feeling of being able to provide a better life for your family and friends or service to some larger cause. Without those three, what psychologists have found is that overemphasis on financial reward actually undermines autonomy and undermines intrinsic motivation. Which explains why in a lot of sales industries, with many salespeople, if they haven't found some deeper meaning and purpose to their work, they tend to experience a deep sense of emptiness despite making a lot of money. Okay? So we think, no, 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 money increases autonomy, right? I mean, now, come on, CJ, I have financial freedom to buy whatever I want. Well, it does for a little bit, but then it actually undermines that autonomy. 
your sense of control over your meaning in life and destiny. And you feel empty. Interesting, right? Okay, but for whatever reason, many employers just don't get it. And so to counter a dip in productivity where meaningless and purposeness strikes their employees, instead of running their companies from a place of values and integrity and giving back, they counter by adding more incentives. And this is where we come to by adding bonuses and rewards. Right? But listen, when researchers at Duke University studied the effectiveness of such incentives, what they found is that undermined work performance even more. When rewards were too large, it actually causes us human beings to become what I call greedy. But in the brain, it looks like an overfixation, overly mentally aroused brain. Okay, and what happens when your brain goes into that state is our decision-making ability becomes compromised and we make more mistakes. So at the end of the day, what these Duke researchers recommended is that bosses need to balance financial rewards with genuine autonomy and interpersonal connection. Because if greed sets in, people make more mistakes and performance is undermined. I love science. It is so awesome. This is great motivation to stop being greedy. Amen? Next motivator, C. Curiosity and learning. Okay, our brains actually are built to naturally want to investigate and explore the world. Especially things that we don't understand or things that run counter to our previous experiences. It's why many of us like to travel or to go places or to eat at places we've never been before. It's why we naturally ask questions. Now we can ask nicely or we can ask rebelliously, okay? Or we can ask, you know, like Singaporeans do, in our head. Rebel in our head, but don't say it out loud, right? When something doesn't quite gel with what we already know, okay? So again, like creative expression, there can be two kinds of curiosity and learning. And this is where we talk about mastery versus performance. Okay, remember Daniel Goleman said, people who are motivated prioritize mastery, not performance. Mastery is to master for the purpose of developing competence and personal growth. So you learn because you want to grow. You learn because you want to do well. You want to you do it you know, to, be, uh, to, to know your stuff well. Performance is when you perform well only in comparison to others. So you try to not look bad, try not to be left behind, okay? And guess what they found across multiple studies? While performance motivation can lead to great short-term results, mastery as a motivation led to long-term improvement. So for example, in a study of 3,000 grade 7 German students from German schools, they found that performance-oriented learning resulted in immediate but an only temporary increase in math scores. While mastery-orientated learning saw a consistent growth in math achievement over three years. Other studies also found that performance-orientated goals led to good short-term retention but poor long-term memory retention. And further, the extrinsic nature, the ext extrinsic nature of 
performance orientation, which comes from the fear of negative outcomes, right? It actually, in the long run, undermines your intrinsic motivation as well. And so, in the long run, if you are performance-oriented, you become less motivated and less engaged with whatever you are doing. Amen? So, this is a good thing for parents to remember, not to drive your children up the wall over results. Instead, teach them to want to master and personally develop in life. Okay? Now, finally, last one, D, fear. Is fear a good motivator, all right? Well, the answer is no. Because like performance orientation, fear only drives temporary productivity because you want to avoid the threat of punishment. So when we are motivated by fear, the part of our brain that processes emotions, the amygdala, that is the big player, the second player in short and long term, it's also a big player in short and long term memory formation, all right? The partner of the prefrontal cortex, right? When it comes to regulating our limbic link, can you remember this from the last two lessons, right? And therefore, it controls our decision-making at EQ. Listen, when we are in fear, our brain goes haywire. Once it detects danger, it sends your body into fight, flight, or freeze mode. Now, while your responses under stress may look like productivity, right? Being productive in the moment, listen, isn't the same as producing something as something of quality. So, what happens is your brain starts to divert all its energy to surviving. Right? It happens the night before your exam or major submission when you haven't done the work and now you're last minute chunging. You're not thinking analytically. You're just trying to stay alive. And here's the thing. When fear is the dominant motivator, intrinsic motivation is actually nowhere to be found. There's no room for creative expression. There's no room for curiosity and learning, much less personal mastery. Fear will lead to a vastly lower quality, albeit promptly delivered product. Okay? So listen, back to Isaiah 55. Why spend your life, time, and energy on motivation that doesn't satisfy? That doesn't speak to your true nature and potential? If you want to lead in life to be successful and satisfied, trade in your lower motivators for higher motivators. Trade in your worldly, financial, greedy incentives for God's higher values. Ready for number three? Finally, number three. To stay motivated, surround yourself with grace. Now, what do I mean by grace? If you have a message Bible, you can turn with me. If not, I have it up on the projection for you. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9 to 12 in the message Bible. It says there, it's better to have a partner than to go it alone. Share the work, and I love this. I don't think it says this in the CV. It says, share the work, share the wealth. And if one falls down, the other helps. But if there's no one to help, tough. Two in a bed warm each other alone, you shiver all night. By yourself, you're unprotected. With a friend, you can face the worst. Can you round up a third? A three-stranded rope isn't easily snapped. So I said to you earlier, right, willpower, especially individual 
willpower. It's very unreliable when it comes to sustaining motivation. The fact of the matter is that no matter how good you and I are with changing our belief system, with choosing our incentives, you still have days where you struggle to be the architect of your emotions. When you struggle to focus on higher level incentives because so many people around you are driven by comparison, desperation, by greed. You are, you are swept up in the overwhelming culture and behavior of this broken world. You know, there are going to be seasons you can't keep walking. There are going to be days when you will wake up and not feel like getting out of bed, even for the things you are passionate about. You see, motivation will fluctuate when your life is hard, when your body is worn out, when your hormones are changing, when people disappoint or hurt you. It is hard to stay motivated without connection, without God and without some help from your friends. You see, you ought to know it at least philosophically, right? That humans are not built to be alone. And if you are Christian, you will know that our worldview is that God created us human beings with a need for connection. To have a relationship with God and others. And so, and listen, even further, let me say this, as far as God's call on humanity is concerned, we are not even meant in God's will to succeed alone. So all this competition in the world we're living in, right? Showing off who has a better job, who has a better clothes, who has a better spouse, who has a better life. Actually not quite in line with God's intentions. You were meant to succeed and know that you didn't just get there by your own hard work, but also because of the grace God gave you and the grace others gave you. Sometimes you're supposed to get there and even realize that your good fortune is built on someone else's misfortunes. I mean, who, has, who here has ever admired somebody that got to the top and said, I did it all by myself? You may have envied that person's moment of recognition. You might have envied that they are so successful and when you look at their net worth, wow. But I can guarantee you, you never admire them. You see, we all admire people who get to the top, but still have the humility to say it wasn't just me. We envy the people who get to the top and are still surrounded by people who love them, are happy for them, and are proud of them. We, we admire people who are, yes, earning well for themselves, but putting the rest that they have back into others who weren't as blessed as them. You see, I find we're very often not quite aware, not quite in the know with what we really want and how we really feel. And that is a very important distinction because what you believe about what you believe can literally change your interpretation of events and your experience of life. It can change what you value it will change your goals. It will even change your dreams. And let me 100% guarantee you, none of us here are going to cross the finishing line of our life happy if you don't understand what should be your true anchors and motivators in life. You are not going to cross the line happy without a deeper purpose and motivation that comes only from a deep engagement with God and others and the world around you. Because listen, 
Motivation is never at its best without connection. But let me push this even deeper, all right? Do you know that empathy and human connection can literally moderate how much pain we feel in this life and also push us into flow states? So, listen, to understand human interactions better, right? Scientists decided to conduct an experiment to see what happens in our brain when empathy occurs. So, they used an approach called hyperscanning, where participants had their brain activity measured using an EEG while they were interacting with each other. So, the researchers recruited participants in pairs. One of the two participants would receive a heat stimulus that resulted in a burn-like sensation while the other person held their opposite hand offering empathy and support. Now, when pairs were strangers, researchers did not see much of an effect on the brain. But when the pairs were friends or romantic partners with a positive relationship, they saw similar patterns of alpha-mu brain activity, a type of brainwave associated with empathy in the right frontal lobe of both persons. The one receiving the comfort, the one getting the hurt. <laughs> and even crazier is that brain synchronicity between the two, okay, when there was greater brain synchronicity, that means the scans look increasingly similar, the less pain the person receiving the heat stimulus reported. Leading to the conclusion that when people trust each other, their interactions, particularly understanding, eye contact and touch, can literally reduce each other's pain. This, is, this effect is called neurosynchrony. Okay? Now, another scientist decided to study if this neurosynchrony that was synonymous with empathy also occurred in teams. And guess what? It does. So, have you ever watched a soccer or a basketball match and suddenly in the middle of a game, a team gets into a team flow? So, you're not sure. Now, listen, the Golden State Warriors were most famous for this phenomenon. Right? Golden State didn't have the most star players, but they had incredible team flow and they won games because of it. Yeah. Well, this scientist decided to put it to the test by constructing an experiment that involved Guitar Hero. Well, more accurately, a Guitar Hero-like game, all right? So again, they hyperscan the brains of people who play individually versus people who play in a social group. And what they found was, in teams where there was greater degree of positive relationships, those teams were able to reach a state of flow in the game. Their brain scans showed greater team neurosynchrony at a level that was not achievable in an individual setting. Okay? So, one of my favorite basketball teams to watch a long time ago was the Chicago Bulls. All right, especially when Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, and Dennis Rodman were at the helm. Together, these three guys and the Chicago Bulls in the 1990s, they won six NBA championships. But listen, if you watch documentaries about these guys, they had an incredibly difficult and often turbulent relationship with each other and the rest of their team. 
And you know, when I watch documentaries about what it was like, sometimes I wonder, you know, if those six championships were really worth all the broken relationships. And now, knowing what I know about teamwork and flow, I also wonder if they could have won even more championships had their relationships been based on empathy and connection rather than competition. And it's almost painful, you know, when you watch the interviews to hear how they talk about one another because now they're old and humble enough to acknowledge each other's greatness. But when they talk about each other, it's full of resentment, negativity, resignation. Listen, we all need to be givers of grace and receivers of grace. There's more to life than just greatness. Life and relationships should also be filled with goodness. And arguably, in my opinion, and according to science, Goodness can make greatness even greater. And that's how I want to end off today's installment of the lead series on motivation, okay? And I want to say to you guys, never underestimate how important you are to each other's lives. Never take your relationships for granted out of laziness, out of competition, out of convenience, out of petty squabbles, jealousy, insecurity, being overly critical and judgmental and rigid. You want everybody to do it your way? Instead, see your friends through eyes of empathy. Walk up to each other and regularly give each other hugs, check-ins during the week. Give grace, but also be good and open and vulnerable to receive grace from others. Because we all need help when it comes to staying motivated in this life. We all need help when it comes to growing our EQ. You all have incredible dreams to conquer. Don't get to your mountaintop alone. Amen? Yeah.